Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenite in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano, who is recording from our remote uh, recording studio in Monticello. How are things in Monticello, Frank? <laughs> things in Charlottesville are great. Thank you very Thanks, David. It's still very hot here. I'll say that. Uh, it, that it, it will be hot there, Frank, I think, for the foreseeable future uh, and only probably hotter. So uh, welcome to the South. Yeah, I was not meant to do this. I was meant to live here. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Anyway, carry on. Anyway, uh, so the, the general election for president is still more than, I guess, what, more than 15 months away, but it already looks like it's a very crowded field of candidates, not only in the, uh, especially in the Republican race, a little bit for the Democratic race, uh, but also for third parties. There appear to be multiple third party candidates that are in the mix of different varieties. And so we thought we would talk about third parties and third party candidacies and what role they have in elections. Um, is obviously this topic we've talked about in some ways before, but it seems like every election this comes up again as a, as a possibility. Yeah, and it comes, I, I know we have done it before, David, but it, it is worth revisiting. And as I was thinking about this this morning, I was wondering, okay, uh, we've seen a spate of stories about third parties. We've seen the RFK Jr. Uh, challenge to Joe Biden, which isn't a third party per se, but he's he's perhaps going to play a spoiler role. We've got the No Labels Party. Uh, or I don't know. They're even counts as a party. We have the No yeah, Labels. They say group. they're not a party. Right. The No Labels Non-Party um, making noise in New Hampshire with Joe Manchin and, and uh, John Huntsman. So centrist, so-called centrist positioning themselves. And so that's what prompts this discussion today. However, I was wondering this morning, okay, is this just every election cycle this happens? There's always a flurry of activity. Cornell West for the Green Party as well mm. should be added to the list. Uh, and, and, you know, there are news stories about this. You know, it's the summer silly season and, and this is just what happens. Or is it a serious challenge? And I think we need to consider that. Um, it's difficult to know. It's a bit like the broker convention, which I know we'll talk about next summer. Um, exactly. you know, everybody always talks about the possibility of a broker convention. Um, is this so? Is this just a hardy perennial, or is this a serious thing? In part, we don't know. Uh, but I, 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 I just had a thought about. I don't know what your thoughts about well, that are. I mean, given the role that third parties have had in recent elections, recent presidential elections, you know, thinking about. The Reform Party with Ross Perot in, in 92 and in 96, you think about the Green Party with Ralph Nader in 2000, you know, and thinking about how close nearly all of the presidential elections have been in recent memory. Um, you know, even a party that doesn't get very much of the vote can have a significant impact on the outcome. Uh, so I think they're, they're relevant, at least just on that point alone. Um, you know, but the United States has the long history of third parties. And I, I think, uh, you know, they don't tend to do very well at the presidential level, but they're very important at the state level in many cases. Um, not so much recently, but definitely in the 19th century, there were lots of them that were, you know, won elections and held office and, and played a real important role in, in the political life of a number of uh, you know, important issues. So. Yeah, I mean, I spoke to a political scientist the other night, and they mentioned that, uh, you know, although Biden won by, what was it, eight or nine million votes, mm. seven or eight million, I can't remember the final figure, a significant sum uh, in the last presidential election, 
if you shifted 43,000 votes in the right states, it would have gone the other way. Now, this is a kind of quirk of the of the Electoral College, and we've talked about that in the past. But, you know, 43,000 votes is not that many. And mm. in 2000, it was a matter of less than 500 votes in Florida. Mm. Um, so, so you're quite correct that third parties or third party candidates can have an output, sorry, an impact on the on the outcome of the election um, in uh, far out of proportion to their kind of the, the official, the final tally they get. So, Frank, I've been thinking about the, the issue of third party, third party candidates for the past few days, and I've come up with a rubric of of types of, of third party candidacies, which I'm going to lay out for you now, and then you're going to tear apart. But then we can maybe if you don't tear it apart, we can apply it to the current candidates. OK, right? so uh, wait, wait, uh, do we have a name for this? Is this like the Silconat rubric? rubric? It, sure. Fine, well, let's go with that. the Silconat protocol. It sounds like a yeah, Robert okay. Ludlum novel. Oh, Jesus Christ. OK, so, <laughs> uh, so I think there's I think there's three kinds of. Third party or independent candidates. The first kind, I think, are independents who used to be part of major political parties but decide to break off and just declare themselves independent. So we can think here about uh, Joe Lieberman, who was a Democrat but became an independent, uh, Kristen Sinema, who was a Democrat but is now an independent, those categories of people where they have, they, they are running uh, as an independent person but as a real viable candidate because they have uh, political status and clout. So I think that's sort of one category. Okay. Uh, and I'm only talking about the serious candidates, the fringy, crazy ones. I think that's probably a fourth category of, of things. The second category, I think, are people who are third party candidates who decide to try to build a party around themselves, but anticipate that they are building a broader political movement beyond themselves. So here I'm thinking about the Progressive Party with the Bull Moose Party from 1912, where it is a party built around one person, Teddy Roosevelt, but then later they have other candidates who run as progressive as progressive party people. So it's built around a person, but it's a broader political movement. Uh, also, like you know, the Ross Perot Reform Movement Reform Party, they actually got a few people elected as part of the Reform Party, like uh, Jesse the Body Ventura. Uh, you know, when he was governor of the right, state. yep. So that's the second category of, of people. Uh, and those tend to be things that start with like the highest office and then work their way down. Right. So they, they start with the presidential run and then they try to sort of you know build backfill the, the actual party. And the third category, I think, are people who run who are representatives of legitimate or like actual parties where they are representatives of a party and that most third parties in American history of this kind tend to be single issue parties. The Free Soil Party, the Greenback Party, the Temperance Party, the what have you, the Anti-Mason Party. And those tend to start from the bottom up where they tend to run for state legislature, mayor, governor. And they may end up running for president, but they are much more interested in local politics. What do you think about that rubric? So I think those are different categories of types of third-party candidates. I think we should treat those as, as separate okay. Kinds so, of so, so, so if I've got this correct, if I'm hearing you, okay, um, we have sort of 
what you call not I don't know that you use this phrase, but legitimate independence, actual independence, people who leave a major party to just yeah. stand on their own. Well, and, and that's because either they moved politically or the party moved politically and they decide that they're better off. Like Bernie Sanders okay. is an independent. Right. Because, yeah, right. There's okay. But, but yeah, I'm just trying to summarize this to make sure okay. I have it straight in my own mind. The second group are kind of, you didn't say cult of the personality, but but, but personalities um, who create a party around themselves often to run for the highest office. And I think you're right. right. Ross Perot, Teddy Roosevelt would fit into this category um i mean to some extent donald trump started out that way he just happened mm. to win the nomination uh, um but 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 okay um and, and he could third, actually end up being that way again if he doesn't win the republican nomination this time but right um and then the third group which you said actual parties which is interesting i want to kind of kind of mm. uh unpack that um because it's a chicken or egg thing. Are they actual parties? Or because what I was thinking is you were building to that. And I thought, oh, he's not going to say what I think he's going to say. I was thinking crusaders, mm. you know, people for, yeah, but you you got to it. You more or less said actual parties or single issue parties and their candidates, I guess. So I think you yeah. did get there. And I was thinking of, of um, moral issue crusaders like temperance um, or the anti-Masonic party. And sometimes the crusade can be quite, uh, insidious uh, or unpleasant, mm. but but sure. Um, I, I think you've got it, but I do think these, and I know you're not suggesting they are rigid categories, there's a bit of blurring between and among them, because I think oh, you sure. get um, kind of big personality types who might be moral crusaders. Um, and similarly, you know, so Teddy Roosevelt leaving the leaving the Republican Party, he didn't quite leave in 1912, and establishing a the Bull Moose Party is is a um, it might also fit into Category One. So I think there's a little bit of blurring between these things. Well, um, but I mean, the reason why I don't put him in Category One is because there are other people who end up running as progressive candidates, okay, and, and claiming the same look. I am like him. And I, you know, and so there, you know, people who are following that trajectory. Um, that, that, so, that's the distinction for me between those two. Okay, okay. No, no, I, I, I like what I'm hearing. So would you put the no labels non-party in category one? Well, the, that's the thing I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with is that, that looking back historically, I can find out, figure out where most people and most political movements fit in this rubric. The no labels group, which has been around um, for more than a decade. Yeah says they're not a political party, which is an intriguing claim. And, and I think they're doing that in part because they don't want to report who their donors are. Um, actually, I think that's 90% of why they're not doing saying that. But they say they're interested in, in creating a, a coalition candidate, maybe for running for president, but that that's not their end all and be all as a political movement. Um, it's very unclear who the, the the no labels people are in terms of who's actually running it and where the their sources of funding are. Uh, but you know they had a, an events in in New Hampshire recently, you know, and and Lieberman I think showed up there, and 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 Joe Manchin showed up there, and John Huntsman showed up there, and they've had various people who have been tossed around as pot potential no labels candidates. Um, and so I don't really know what to make of them because they both look like a political party, but also don't look like a political party. 
they don't have a platform. It isn't clear what the endorsement of the no label party means. All right. I mean, I think historically parties have platforms and, and that the candidates for the parties more or less agree with 90% of the platform. And that's why they're affiliated with the political party. Uh, but no label seems to both not have a label, um, but also not have a platform. Um, and so I don't really know what to make of them. What do you make of them? Yeah, good question. Uh, I mean, I think it's a centrist group or a group that sees itself as centrist mm -hmm. um, that wants to. I mean, I think the we're not a party on one hand. Yes, it's masking. We, if we're not if we say we're not a party, we don't have to disclose who's paying our bills. And I think that is part of it. But I also think it's trying to be a response to the perceived partisanship and alienation and there's a little bit of both sidesism to it saying you know joe manchin's a case in point joe manchin depending on your perspective um is has been subjected to a lot of criticism from the left of the democratic party and not just the left actually i mean because of he, he was seen as an obstacle particularly on some of the climate legislation that the biden administration sought to pass and they had to work around him and or make concessions to him uh kirsten cinema was a little bit like this too mm. uh, and 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 i think he found that a bruising encounter similarly john huntsman from the right is one of the larger group of Republicans who's been alienated by the rise of Trumpism and MAGA Republicans. And so I think they, and it's interesting, they're all of an age, that mm. they hearken back to an earlier time where they perceived there was greater bipartisan cooperation in Washington and want to return to that. And that, by definition, makes them centrist. But in the current moment, I think, not without justification, they've been treated as apostates in their relative parties and they they feel a little bit alienated and homeless but that makes the and so so sorry it's a long-winded response to you but i think saying we're not a party we're a kind of caucus or coalition of people who don't believe in labels we want to be able to work across the spectrum i think they they're speaking to a lot of if I can say alienated centrists, or they're trying to speak to alienated centrists in the United States who feel that they've been let down by the kind of shrill partisanship that characterizes, if not the country, at least the way the country's politics play out on social media and in traditional media. Does that well, make sense? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, they, they, they've affiliated themselves with the Problem Solvers Caucus in, in Congress, which is also that sort of moderates who are trying to get things done. Um, one of the interesting sort of exchanges that happened at this New Hampshire event uh, is that they asked the various people assembled, like I had one of the, the tenets of it is that one of, if they nominate candidates for president, they're going to have a Republican Democrat pairing. And somebody said, well, does that ever happen before? And, and Joe Manchin said, well, yeah, it did in 1864. And for those people who know that what the outcome of that election, the consequences of that, that didn't really work out the way it was intended. Uh, that the 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 Lincoln uh, Johnson ticket, uh, while well intentioned, may maybe uh, had some pretty disastrous consequences. Right, but they actually, sorry, sorry, David, I want to stop you there though because you're right about that, of course. But that wasn't down to the fact it was a bipartisan ticket. That was down to the fact that the 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 half of that ticket and the one who became president 
upon Lincoln's assassination was Andrew Johnson. Andrew well, Johnson's problems weren't that he was a Democrat. It's that he was Andrew Johnson. Well, he was the only Democrat they had to pick from that was from the South. So, you know, they, they, they their options were, anyway, um, you know, the, that this idea of having a, a mixed marriage, if you will, or a, a sort of a, a political, you know, a balanced ticket or, or, or whatever you want to think about this as, um, it works well in theory, but it's just our, you know, we don't have a whole lot of good history to, to rely upon for, for doing that. Um, what about what about some of these other third party candidates? What, what do you make of them? What do you make of Cornell West running for president? I don't know. I, I, I genuinely don't know what what motivates people to run for president. You have not considered when, this yourself, Frank? No, no, I will not stand. <laughs> I want to make a clear statement now. Um, Insofar, what I was to finish that statement, I don't. I, I understand what motivates people who could win the presidency or believing they could win. So you can easily say, you know, why would you put yourself through that? Well, if you win, you know, the payoff is the job itself. It's the prestige. It's it's the you're a president for the rest of your life. Effectively, you know, it. it I can imagine there are benefits to running when you can win. Cornell West is not a stupid man. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who said some pretty surprising things or uh, outrageous things recently. Again, not a stupid man. Um, these people must know at some level that they're not, they don't have any chance of becoming president. And I don't understand what motivates people under those circumstances to run most of the time, unless they fit in your third category of the, mm. the basically the crusaders saying, yeah. I want to make a point. Now, RFK Jr., who, again, it doesn't quite fit because he's he's running for the Democratic nomination. He's not running as a third-party candidate, at least not yet. Mm. Um, uh, so he's challenging Joe Biden within the party structure. So he's not a good example. Uh, but, but, you know, Cornell West, I guess he really cares about the environment and wants to make green issues central. But we have that. There's a history of, a recent history of Green Party candidates who obviously, well, seem to be committed uh, on environmental questions, but right. their very candidacies seem to assist of the two major parties, the one that's least sympathetic to the environment. And and and, and yeah. so, yeah, we had Jill Stein in the recent past and, and Cornell West, you know, would seem likely to, more likely to take votes away from Joe Biden if Joe Biden is the nominee, mm. then from Donald Trump or whoever the Republican nominee is. So I can't actually understand that if you really, really care about the environment. But on the other hand, if you're a moral, if you're in your third category, the kind of people I call crusaders, mm. you know, if you look at the history of your century, in the 19th century, there are a lot of these people. Oh, yeah. And the, and and they, and I want to ask you why you think that, why that was. But if you look at them, they say, look, the moral question Slavery, for example, is mm. so important. You know, don't give us, I don't want to hear about how, you know, politics about this and how it's going to help one of the major parties. This question is the only one that matters, and we have to keep it front and center. That mm. is a consistent position. It might even be an ethical position, but it, it it's not necessarily a politic position. What do you think? Um, well, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I can't see inside you know Cornell West's head about why he's running but I, I I think 
you know, one of the roles that third parties have played, especially these kinds of ideologically driven third parties, whether it's the Green Party or the Temperance Party or what have you, you know, is really to try to draw attention to an issue that is the other parties they feel are not dealing with adequately. Um, you know, and thinking back to the, the 19th century when, when there were a lot of these kinds of parties, um, you know, they, they often run presidential candidates, but that's not where their action is. For many of these parties, their real action is at the state level. And in many cases, they are very successful, right? So if we look at um, the anti-Masonic party, which was a big party in the 1830s, they win governor's races in a, in a handful of states and they finished second in a number of others, uh, mostly in, in New England and the Mid-Atlantic. Um, so in which case they're not third parties, in some cases they're second parties. Um, you know, if you're looking at like the uh, Know Nothing Party, the American Party, they do very well in a number of states. Um, the Greenback Party does, does very well in a number of states. The Temperance Party and later the Prohibition Party uh, they do well in a number of states. Um, my favorite third parties, I don't know whether you have favorite third parties, Frank, but I do. Um, the the Farmer Labor Party and the uh, Nonpartisan League. Are you familiar with either of those parties? I'm familiar with the Farmer Labor Party. I'm not familiar with the Nonpartisan League, which sounds a lot like no labels to me, but maybe I'm okay, it's it, In fact, the names sound similar, but they have nothing in common. Okay. Okay. So th th these are basically two political parties. One is in Minnesota. Uh, that's the Farmer Labor Party, and the, the Nonpartisan League is in North Dakota. And they were from the sort of teens into the thirties, the dominant political parties in those two states. Um, you know, they weren't third parties; they were first parties. You know, they held the governor's office. They often had a significant number of seats in the legislature. They both were sort of spinoffs of the Socialist Party. And the Socialist Party was a very successful third party, uh, you know, in the end of the 19th and early part of the 20th century, party that gets a number of uh, people elected to, to state and local office. Uh, and what both of these, the, the Farmer Labor uh, Party and, and the, the Nonpartisan League do is they, they are really sort of coalitions between uh, in both of these states, between uh, industrial workers and farmers and trying to create a Kind of a socialist state in response to that. Uh, and you still see vestiges of these 100-year-old political movements in those states today. So like North Dakota has a state bank and a state mill and, and a variety of other sort of quasi-socialist institutions that are relics from a political movement 100 years ago. And uh, you know, in Minnesota, uh, they don't have a Democratic Party. They have a Democratic Farmer Labor right. Party. And that's because the, the, the farmer labor party merged with the Democrats uh, during the 1940s. Uh, so the party is still, still around and still kicking. The uh, best thing though about the nonpartisan league, uh, you know, parties have mascots, the Democrats is a donkey, the Republicans is an elephant. The nonpartisan league, they had a goat. And I don't know why I like that. I'm not quite sure why the goat was their mascot, but they had a goat, so. <laughs> well, of course, now the goat in the current vernacular has come to mean greatest of all time. Maybe that, they were uh, so the nonpartisan league, you know, they they they're they're forgotten at least outside of North Dakota, but they're uh, they were they were a powerhouse at least locally, all right. And I think we 
when we think about political parties, we tend to focus so much on what's going on at the, the national level, and especially what's going on in the presidency. I think if you drill down below that to the state level, I think you're still finding third parties being very vibrant in the United States. I think like the Libertarian Party in New Hampshire is huge uh, for whatever reason, right? And and you've got the Green Party is, is electing people to the state legislatures in, in some parts of the US. Um, and so, you know, I think the they, they tend to get dismissed as being inconsequential because the way they get forced out by the electoral college uh, but but they really do have a, a significant role in, in outcomes of policies interesting interesting so so were there more third parties in the 19th century david because politics was more local so so i i like your local theme here hmm. but but the 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 kind of more local and you know the states in many respects where the where the action was for particularly prior to the civil war yeah um and so do we see more third parties because of that or I, I, also and or because in the aftermath of the second great awakening moral questions and moral crusades hmm. be it temperance women's rights slavery hmm. etc uh were also on the agenda I think I think both of those things are true. I think one thing though that's going on, especially at the local level, is that in many places there was a very dominant political party. And if you wanted to critique what that political party was doing, you often couldn't join the other political party because it didn't have a local presence or it was tainted locally because of its association with secession or whatever it is. So in some places, if you were didn't like the Republicans, you couldn't join the Democrats, so you became a backer of the Green, you know, Greenback Party. Um, you know, and I think there was a real opportunity to get people elected at the local level. And if you understood that's where politics was, um, that kind of local organization, I think, mattered a lot more. But I think you're also right, the, the sort of you know, moral crusading of the 19th century is hard to under 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 uh, estimate. Although we've got plenty of moral crusaders right now. On a variety sure. of issues, whether that's abortion rights or 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 marijuana legalization or thirty seven other things, um, but they tend not to try to form their own political parties, at least not uh, to the same extent. Right. I mean, they, they tend to work within the two dominant political parties. You know, right, now, now there's good reasons for that. I mean, I think one of the things that's happened in the 20th century that's different than the 19th century. I think it was a lot easier to get in the ballot in the 19th century. I think that the the dominant political parties have made it very very hard for third parties of any stripe to actually have people be able to vote for them. Um, and you know, one of the things that the no labels movement or party or whatever you want to call it is doing is trying to get a no labels slot available in all fifty states, and that's sort of what their one of their objectives. Um, but that's a that's a very daunting task. And yeah, and we've seen that in the past, even with with well-funded third-party movements. That's very tough outside yeah. the existing party structure. Um, how can the no? I mean, sorry, I've got a practical question. Then I have a bigger question to put to you, a kind of more metaphysical question, I guess. Mm. Um, how can the no labels group, if it's not a party, get on the ballot? I mean, how, I have how no do they idea. Physically do, how do they I, legally do it? And well, I, that I have no idea. That, that that's what they're talking about. 
but I think they're still sort of trying to figure out who their candidate is, if they're going to run a candidate, um, you know, but, but the amount of organizing it takes simply to get on the ballot and the amount of money it takes to get on the ballot, um, you know, it's, it's tremendous. I think that's one of the barriers to, to third parties, at least at the national level. Um, yeah, and then the Green Party spends most of the time just making sure they're on the ballot. Uh, right. I mean, the challenge of running as an independent is significant, let alone running as an independent in 50 states. Yes. Which is why you need a party organization. Uh, so I, I, in thinking about this episode, David, I, I mm. thought a couple of things. Um, you know, we've talked about the origins of the two-party system before, and we've talked about party realignment. I'm wondering uh, one of two things. Or Sorry, I'm wondering two things, and I wonder if either of them um, are germane here. One is, are we in the midst of a realignment, a bit like we saw with the emergence of the Republican Party in the 1850s, hmm. in that the current modern contemporary Republican Party has very much shifted to the right uh, under, under Donald Trump, and it's very much a Trumpist party. I'm not hmm. saying that as a kind of partisan comment. I think, it's, I think that's probably quantifiable. Uh, yet there are a significant number of people who in the past might have been described as moderate Republicans who are searching for political homes or a political home. Some have gone to the Democrats, but some presumably are up for grabs. And what I'm wondering is, are we seeing a political realignment uh, starting? In other words, will a new center-right party emerge and what is currently the Trumpist Republican Party will become smaller and smaller as time passes? Hmm. Or are we seeing the birth pangs of a third, an actual third party? I'm not talking about a third party in electoral terms in the first hmm. instance, but I'm talking like, make, let's call it no labels first. You know, like, will centrists actually coalesce and we'll end up, you know, many European countries, not the one we live in, um, mm. which has a third party, but it's not terribly big, or in Scottish politics are different still. So let's not talk about Britain <laughs> and, and the UK in this in this context. But European continental European countries often have center centrist parties, center right, center left parties, and then parties of the more extremes, left and right. You know, are we see could we see the emergence of a centrist third party? a center-left hmm. Democratic Party, and a slightly further right, we'll call it the Republican Party because that's the name they still have, or the heirs to Trumpism. Yeah. Did, are you following me? Yeah, no, I, I think I think there is, we're in an interesting moment right now because the parties, two parties are so polarized. And that makes them, I think, both eerily, both stable and, and unstable as a system. I think it makes... You know, the identity of what a Democrat is and what a Republican is has never been clearer. Uh, but on the other hand, I think that the the number of people who get left out of those conversations by that polarization, I think creates a, I think as you're right, an opportunity for a, a realignment uh, of some kind because people find that they don't fit into either of those camps. I mean, I think for, if you look at sort of the middle part of the 20th century, uh, just to, as a counterpoint to our current moment, you know, the 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 Democratic Party and the Republican Party were both big tent parties that had various coalitions of of of, of strange bedfellows in them. Um, you know, in ways in which that made politics uh, 
functional in certain ways and I'm dysfunctional in others. Um, and, and those parties don't exist anymore. One of the things I think that happens with third parties when they become major parties is there's a, I think there's a transition phase that third parties have to go through. And yeah, I think you see this with the Republicans um, back in the 1850s. When they were a new party, they were a single issue party. Right. They were, you know, they, they were established in response to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Their first name was the Anti-Nebraska Party, which they soon realized was a dumb name. Um, so they ditched it and became Republicans. But they, they went from being a party that was built around what unified Republicans were, was their opposition to this one particular piece of legislation and a particular vision for the West. Um, but then they had to say, well, actually, what are our positions on everything else? Right. And I think one of the things that that would happen to a third party if it goes from being a, a, a third party to being a, a second party is it's going to have to reconfigure what the party's about and is going to have to start to think about issues that are not central to its whatever its you know um, organizing principle is. You know, so the Green Party is going to have to think about things that are not germane to the, the environment, although. One could argue everything's germane to the environment, but they're going to have to start to think about those things. Um, you know, if the if the Green Party becomes a major party, or the Libertarians, or um, the Prohibitionists, they still run candidates, um, not very successfully. Um, they'd have to think about other things too, right? Um, and so I think that's one thing that would happen if a third party does emerge to really sort of challenge the third party system that we're in, which has lasted now for you know, 150 years. So is the challenge that faces the no labels party, and I'm going to mm. call them a party in this in yeah. the context of the scenario I'm sketching, is the challenge that faces them that they don't actually have an issue. I mean, their issue is seemingly bipartisanship and centrism, Tristan. and that's not really something you can run on. Well, it, I think it's going to be very hard to, you know, it, it's nice for them to get together and talk about it, but 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 just having read media accounts of that, convention they recently held, they don't agree on very much, right? Like they, they don't have, there is no platform upon which um, people can identify with that party. And people might say, yes, I want compromise. Everybody seems to want compromise. That's a very popular thing to, to tell pollsters, but usually that means they want people on the other side to agree with them, rather right. than it is <laughs> to actually sort of meet somewhere in the middle. And it's it's very tricky, I think, at this particular moment to reach the middle in some of our politics. I think some of the issues that people care the most about are ones that are, um, you know, uh, bivalent in their orientation. Um, and and, and a, you know, the the no labels party is going to have to figure out what their stance is on abortion. And and it's very hard for them to say, well. That because that's not going to work in, in, in American politics in 2024. Okay, I don't think so all right, so we're not necessarily seeing the emergence of a third party in the two party system, and I think you've made a persuasive case for why that's so. So, what about my first? What about the other scenario where um, we might be seeing death pangs might be putting it too strong, mm. but the you know the Republican Party going through a profound kind of change in identity and yeah. you know is is that what's happening 
that I mean, I think that could very easily happen. I think there's lots of, of people who at one point identified that as Republicans who, for a variety of reasons, don't feel quite at home in the party anymore. We can think about, you know, like Liz Cheney, who has been summarily kicked out of the party, but was once, you know, from not the first family in the party, but probably the second family in the party. Um, you know, we can think about, you know, John Huntsman and various other people like that who are uh, moderate Republicans. We can think about Chris Christie, who is, seems to be the only Republican running for president right now, who is willing to be critical of, of Donald Trump and uh, to speak out on January 6th issues, uh, whereas the rest of them seem to be being very diplomatic about that in ways that, that uh, you know, they don't want to alienate the Trump supporters. Um, so I could definitely see, you know, these parties, both, especially the Republican Party, but both parties, you know, struggle to, to, to hold together uh, and have some, some reconfiguration. Um, and that could be, have some, really, I, mean, I think the change in which these things can happen can happen very fast. And I think this coming election, uh, you know, it's hyperbole to say this is going to be a, the most consequential election of our lifetimes, because pollsters say that every election. But this could really, there, there could be some very unexpected things that happen between now and, and uh, November of 2024. Oh, surely there will be. I, I mean, one of the things the political scientist I was speaking to the other night said, which is, gave me pause, he, he said, um, look, everyone's assuming it's going to be Biden versus Trump. And, and they're both, you know, the, the uh, prohibitive favorites, I think you would say, mm. to win the nominations uh, of their parties or, or the heavy favorites, maybe, rather than prohibitive. Uh, but uh, this individual made the point. These are not young men. And the likelihood of a major medical event affecting one or both of them is significant. Mm. And former president trump has significant legal challenges that he's facing which yes. might become more serious in the next few days and and so the, the, this guy was saying you know we shouldn't necessarily assume apropos of the point you just made that uh things are going to run as as clearly as as they or as um you know what seems likely now may not happen well i mean i was thinking about what would the 1968 election have looked like from july of, of 18 or 1967 right yeah exactly he would have That's said where we he are. would have said oh lbj is going to win in a landslide because he won in a landslide last time you know and then he drops out and robert kennedy gets killed that's and right all, you know all the stuff happens. so so there's a, a long time and many things uh, many twists left in the river which is why speculate i mean this is summertime speculation a year in advance about third parties and, and to some extent I suspect that if we're still doing this po podcast four years from now, we might be doing the same episode. Well, I mean, I think the, the political season, especially for the presidency, has just become a such an extended calendar that, you know, on the one hand, yes, is it premature to talk about all these things? Sure. But on the other hand, you know, given that that the ways in which which some campaigns are now being sort of written off as saying, oh, well, he hasn't gotten momentum yet. So they clearly can't get it. it we're, we're, you know, the the nine month or twelve month uh, campaign season has now become a, you know, forty eight month campaign season. Well, everybody, look forward in eight months to our episode on broken conventions. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
<laughs> if the Republic lasts that long. Right. Um, all right, Frank. Uh, well, 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 we'll plan ahead for that, listeners. Put that in your calendars. Um, time for the last drop, Frank. What you got? My last drop, I've got uh, double drops. I want to uh, <laughs> uh, extend my congratulations to two of our students, two, of, uh, two PhD students that we supervise together, in fact, yes. who received their PhDs this week at graduation. I was not there, but I want to congratulate them publicly. Uh, doctors Kristen Blackstone and James Mackay, both of whom wrote very good dissertation, doctoral dissertations. Uh, and and I want to congratulate them on their wonderful achievement and uh, retrospectively send my apologies for missing graduation because I was otherwise uh, occupied here. Yes, they they seem very. I was I was able to go to their graduations because I was not uh, ensconced in, in in sunny Virginia. Uh, but but they they both seem very happy. So uh, congratulations to both of them. Excellent. What's your last drop, David? Uh, so last weekend, I was in Cambridge for a, a conference, uh, and I was trying to sort of dip into some museums. Cambridge has a number of really uh, great museums, but one I want to recommend was one that when I was talking to the locals there, many of the locals didn't know about, but I went to it, and I thought it was extraordinary, and that is the Center for Computing History. Oh, that's right up your alley. Yeah, so I'm interested in the history of computers, uh, and you know most of Cambridge's museums are affiliated with the university, and they're near campus and they're in fancy buildings. This was not. This was in a industrial park on the outskirts of town, uh, next to like a plumbing fitting warehouse thing. Um, but it's an enormous museum devoted to the history of computing. They've got computers uh, going back into the 50s, but most of their collection is. Uh, 70s to 90s, uh, and it's really an extraordinary collection of, of machines, almost all of which worked, you know, and so the staff there get these machines to work, and so they not only have, uh, you know, PC kind of computers, but they had uh, gaming consoles of a variety of different varieties, and they, they all worked, and so you could play Pong, or you could play, nice. you know, various other kinds of things, uh, and, and, you know, and uh it it i had a few hours to kill before my train ride back to edinburgh and, and i want to highly recommend the center for computing history if you grew up loving computers and loving you know games with with you know 16 colors or whatever it is um you know it, it's sort of a trip down memory lane and, and a good you know play, place to learn about the history of computing very cool very right. cool. all right until next week frank see you next week david The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.